Hello, I'm Michelle Abad. Welcome to Making Space, Rappler's podcast on gender, health, education, and everything in between. Rappler recently released a story on sex workers who agreed to have sex with policemen just so they could cross borders and earn a living during the coronavirus lockdown. The police organization condemned the abuse and insisted we name the perpetrators among the uniformed ranks and compel the abused women to file cases. The women were not interested. They said they didn't need saving. What's going on? We often think sex workers are victims under any circumstance. In this episode, we'll be talking about the less popular but equally true discourse that some sex workers engage in this activity on their own accord, and so they don't always think that informing the authorities about it is in their best interest. Part of this political agency is the choice to not trust the law enforcers. Today, I'm speaking to someone who is studying the situation of Filipino sex workers in the Philippines for her dissertation in the University of Cambridge. Hi, Sharmila. Would you please introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Sharmila Parmanand. I am currently completing a PhD in gender studies at the University of Cambridge. I'm also a Gates scholar. I look into the relationship between anti-trafficking and sex work. In particular, I look at how sex workers are represented in anti-trafficking discourses. I compare, you know, these claims that are made about sex workers with sex workers' own lived realities. I also examine the effect of interventions such as rape, rescue, rehabilitation programs on sex workers in the Philippines. So why do you think the topic of sex work is so complex in the Philippine context? So for the longest time, we've had just one predominant view on the progressive side. Our revised penal code currently still criminalizes the sale of sex which of course is a terrible idea because we are criminalizing vulnerable individuals. So for the longest time, that was the dominant perspective, that it is criminal, that these women are always stereotypically female, that they are bad, that they are a threat to society, that they are vectors of disease, right? Mm-hmm. So as a way of correcting this, the advocacy of the progressive movement in general has been moving towards a more sympathetic shift in relation to sex work and to portray sex workers now as victims instead. So as individuals who have no agency, who are simply acted upon by the forces of the patriarchy and poverty, and who could not have under any circumstances consented to engaging in selling sex. So they are essentially forced or their vulnerability is being exploited. The benefit supposedly of this sympathetic shift is that, well, at least now it becomes easier to justify protecting sex workers instead of denigrating them in the previous paradigm of criminalization, right? Mm -hmm. My argument is both, obviously criminalization is a bad idea, but both paradigms are problematic because both Mm -hmm. paradigms still deny sex workers political agency. Like Mm -hmm. the moment we say that there is no possibility of someone making a considered decision, then we also enable interventions such as rescuing them even if they did not want to be rescued or we remove any possibility of political agency. They can't unionize, they can't advocate for themselves. When they try to speak up for their rights, they are told that they are too damaged or too traumatized to be able to adjudicate what is in their best interest, which I find problematic because I don't think this is how we treat other precarious workers like domestic workers or factory workers or gig economy workers. So I think what people seem to be allergic to in the context of sex work is the presence of sex. But I think this is a 
moral judgment rather than something we can generalize. So anyway, that's why I find it quite interesting. Relative to its neighbors, the victimhood narrative in the Philippines is very, very strong. So like I was mentioning earlier, like we just released a story on sex workers and how some of them were raped by police. And it's not impossible for a sex worker to be raped, right? So, so the police and the public, they were trying to discredit the story because the identities behind the story were hidden. And while it's true that some sex workers may be scared for their safety, considering those who were meant to protect them were the ones who abused them, there are also others that may simply accept the abuse for what it is and uninterested in filing complaints. So why do you think this is? Like, Why do you think there is disinterest in coming forward? Well, it's, it's a survival strategy. We exist in a world where selling sex is still criminal under a revised penal code, which means if someone comes forward and says, I have a history of selling sex, on that basis alone, they could already be made legally liable, right? They could already be blackmailed with that. But more than that, it's a heavily stigmatized profession. So coming forward would mean outing yourself to your family and to your community, which Mm -hmm. is just not worth it for many of these people. But in this case, I think the very difficult relationship between sex workers and the police explains a lot. So in my fieldwork interviews with like over a hundred sex workers in Metro Manila, whenever I asked them whom they were most afraid of or what the biggest threats to them were, it wasn't their clients. It wasn't the third parties or what people call pimps. It was cops consistently. The biggest source of abuse was always the police who would extort money from them or extort sexual favors from them or just engage in ritual humiliation, like scaring them or beating them. Or cops were also the clients who usually refused to pay or who were quite abusive. And once it's Mm. a cop, they are in charge of protecting you and they have so much control over the investigation process and they tend to protect their own, as we've seen illustrated in, I guess, in other cases like the drug war. What chance Mm. do you stand as a sex worker when your family or your, I mean, your person, but you're also your family can be threatened by this cop. I absolutely understand why they're not coming forward. And this is well-documented in the literature around the world and even in the Philippines. Can you tell about maybe one notable story that you've heard from a sex worker while during your field work? Oh, there are, there are so many. So one example is that they've essentially engaged in almost this I call it a microeconomy of bribery where, and then these are sex workers from the recto area, but I don't want to give any more identifying information. Mm-hmm. And these are things they tell me in individual interviews I have. So it's, it's not like they're telling me this in a group, like these are all individually validated stories where they say that cops um, demand bribes in exchange for not raiding their specific areas or their specific parts of the street to the point that the sex workers sometimes turn on each other. So those who pay bribes are resentful of those who don't because they are seen as endangering their entire side of the street and exposing all of them to raids. Of course, the real entity here is the cops, right? Not the ones who are not paying. And so some of them say that every week they have to pay between 800 to 1,200 pesos in bribes to the point that the cops have appointed like one of them to already be the regular collector. And in some mm-hmm. cases, they just hand deliver their bribes to the police station to avoid you know, harassment or raids, which again is a result of their lack of political agency because they can't advocate for themselves. They have to live in the shadows. What do you think is unique about the Philippine context of sex workers versus other countries that you've studied? Well, one, we have a very strong religious influence in politics, which means 
there's a lot of feminist nuns and religious figures are involved in activism and many of them are very well-meaning and have actually like really contributed to fighting for human rights and fighting against fascists although the church does have its own fascist streak but at the same time this means that we have well-meaning but very conservative interpretations of the prostitution issue so this whole discourse of love the sinner hate the sin saving people and turning over a new leaf and new life and second chances is applied quite heavily on sex work that's why the victim narrative prevails right there is no space for a discussion of maybe this is something people choose to do relative to the other bad options they have i also think that the specific type of feminist organizations that have led the passage of the anti-trafficking law and the magna carta of women and women's rights uh, legislation tend to have a very anti-sex work perspective and i think it's just a coincidence also that the philippines is a base for some of these organizations while the more progressive ones are based in thailand or even like increasingly in malaysia so it's also like a historical accident that the major players in our women's rights sector and our anti-trafficking sector tend to be abolitionist Yeah, I think it's very interesting that you noted the well-meaning but very conservative type of approach that some feminist orgs have because I remember when Ralph our writer when he was doing the story he was trying to look for a group that was pro-sex work and it was very hard for him. Like the group that he was able to speak to was a feminist group but it was a anti-trafficking group so they did not believe firmly that sex work could be work and oh, that they were I, I... yeah And so yes. uh, for me I came up with this insight that perhaps it might be dangerous for a group to you know come out as pro sex work because it would be like they were promoting a crime or something you know what, what do you think Oh I, I, my entire dissertation is on the politics of knowledge production that's a very charitable interpretation so US aid funding which is the biggest funding in the anti trafficking and HIV prevention space requires you as a grantee to sign an anti prostitution pledge because that is the ideological politics of the US as well with respect to prostitution they have among the worst laws in the world mm-hmm. so if you are running projects and programs related to anti trafficking or hiv prevention in the philippines or anywhere outside the US you need to commit to not supporting prostitution otherwise you are not eligible for grant money mm-hmm. which means there's immediately a financial incentive and all of these organizations in the anti trafficking sector i'm happy to provide data receive funding from the US government which means mm-hmm. there's already a financial incentive to not assume a position that is sympathetic towards sex workers or at least that does not try to save them and instead tries to empower them as political agents so that's one like ideological pressure from donors the other is like i said the cultural constraints that they operate within right so when i used to volunteer for the philippine sex workers collective they were telling me stories of approaching lgbt groups i don't want to name names and even the local amnesty chapter to ask for support to support their position of full decriminalization which is amnesty international's institutional position right but they didn't get very far partly because it is not a politically strategic move here as you said not so much because of a fear of criminalization i mean a fear of like being jailed or anything like that because i'm going to explain the legal tension in a bit but i think because it is not seen as politically viable to take this position in a conservative country and where a lot of your gatekeepers in the feminist movement and in the anti trafficking sector which i talk about in my dissertation have a very abolitionist abolitionist position now why is it not actually legally costly for people to support 
the decriminalization position. It is because if you look at our anti-trafficking law or our Magna Carta of women, they do reinterpret prostitution and they call it violence against women, which is why we do have two laws that are in tension with each other. And this limbo is really dangerous for sex workers because it's exploited by the cops, right? So one law, the revised penal code says it's criminal to sell sex. But now you have this later set of laws that are trying to override that, but obviously don't legally override that, which lend themselves to the interpretation that people engaged in prostitution can be seen as victims instead, right? So if an organization really wanted to back decriminalization, they do have legal legs to stand on in terms of fighting against the perspective of sex workers as criminals. So I don't think that is quite the reason. I think the reason is other incentive structures that they have. Okay. So if we look back at the comments on or the reception of the story that we had, that the women didn't want to come forward, you know, they were they kept saying that not all cops or Rappler give us proof or this is fake. So with this kind of popular sentiment, and I would like to point out that a lot of the people who were saying these were men, and actually when we noticed that some people were saying that Rappler doesn't owe it to the public to disclose the name of the names of these women, the people who were saying those were women, actually. So with this, like with the way that the story was received about sex workers, what does this say about how the public sees sex work and about women's bodily autonomy? You know, we have a really long way to go. And I'm actually also going to critique here both the comments, but I mean, even the labels that are used in the article too. So, Mm -hmm. because I think they are connected. So Mm -hmm. the article refers to the women as prostituted women, which is a term I, I, I do find problematic. So in that specific instance, the women were raped by cops. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. That is unacceptable. There's no excuse for that. And like we've discussed earlier, sex workers can be raped, right? Because Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that just because you engage in selling sex, people can just assume your consent every single time. An analogy I always make is Manny Pacquiao, like he's a boxer, but that doesn't mean I can just randomly walk up to him and box him anytime, right? Like obviously Mm -hmm. there's consent and the individual is uh, the arbiter of consent here. So I do think that when sex workers experience rape, this doesn't invalidate all their other past choices to engage in sex work. Like that's a very different experience to the instance in which they are raped. So they Mm -hmm. happen to be sex workers who have experienced rape, but that doesn't mean they are immediately prostituted women, which denotes something else, which denotes that the entirety of their engagement in the sale of sex was always rape. But that's not like, in a way, we are actually doubly removing their agency by referring to that entirety of their life choices as an experience of rape or lack of agency, even if it was just this specific experience with the cops, right? So it's a Mm -hmm. bit tricky. And I think one thing I do want people to reflect on is part of believing women when they say they are raped, which we absolutely should in the case of the cops and the sex worker, is also believing them when they say they weren't. Mm -hmm. And not assuming that they were always raped in their previous encounters, right? So that's one thing to put out there. But to speak to your point more directly, you're absolutely right that we still exist in a world where there seems to be male entitlement over female bodies and male suspicion when women assert bodily autonomy, especially if they're already a sex worker, because the assumption is, what did you expect? How is this any different from what you do? So there is a lack of regard for it which some people will argue therefore means they really are victims in need of saving because 
society is really so unkind to them. But I think it is a result of their lack of political agency also. Their inability to fight back and speak for themselves and assert their rights over their bodies because they're just completely silenced, right, by this narrative that they're victims. We still have such a long way to go in terms of respecting people's rights over their bodies. But to be honest, I also don't think that the reaction is completely... I guess, completely reflective of the views on sex work. I worry that it is, and I want to tie it to broader attitudes of machismo, I think, in Philippine society mm -hmm. and how we regard cops. I genuinely think that under this administration and the war on drugs that has like glorified policing as like an approach to everything, every single social problem, like a solution to it is to throw the police at it, right? Mm -hmm. and has expanded the powers of the police and kind of portrayed them in people's minds as protectors and saviors and rescuers and the solution to everything. I do think it has to some extent contributed to a toxic culture where we tend to give the police a pass for a lot mm -hmm. of things that they do. And I guess any complaint against the police, people tend to frame it as a criticism of the administration and they get like overly defensive and overly protective of the police. Mm -hmm. And so you have this like weird dynamic going on of like the over-enfranchisement of the police under the Duterte regime. And you superimpose that against existing misogynistic attitudes already in the Philippines. Mm -hmm. And then you superimpose that too against like sex workers' lack of political agency and inability to advocate for themselves. Then yes, you do have the reactions that you get, which are terrible. Yeah, actually, this morning, like I was talking to for this story, I was talking to someone who's engaged in sex work. And I was asking about, you know, the coming forward thing. And she said, there are some feminist groups who are already anti sex work. So what more for an ultra masculine institution yeah. like the cops, right? So yeah. it's also driven by the type of attitude that our president has. That's, you know, very law enforcement driven. He likes to use his cops. And like you said, we've seen that in the war on drugs and in the coronavirus crisis, right? So yeah. it's, it's everywhere. It's really an issue of how the public trusts its cops nowadays. And it's a compounded problem even more for sex workers, right? Because it's a more contentious topic and it's not yeah. as simple and, and it's not single dimension. Do you think that the idea of autonomous sex work is lost and dissolved into one big chunk of abuse and trafficking in the Philippines? Absolutely. I think we conflate trafficking with sex work. Mm -hmm. And I think this is deliberate and by design by some feminist groups who work in the anti-trafficking sector, which baffles me because when we talk about other precarious forms of work like domestic work or factory work or handicrafts, these are also precarious in the sense that the people engaging in this work are doing it also out of poverty, right? It's not as if someone's dream job when they were a child is to work in a factory. It is also born out of desperation. But in these cases, the approach has been to empower the workers. The approach has been to encourage the workers to form cooperatives or to unionize and to consult them meaningfully on policies that affect their lives, right? To treat them as political agents, even if we recognize that they are vulnerable. It's possible to do both, right? To recognize mm -hmm. that someone right. is vulnerable, but to also say, oh, no, 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 I don't want to talk over you and tell you how to think and feel or tell you what is in your best interest. I would like mm -hmm. to hear from you what you think is in your best interest. And, you know, when we develop legislation for the rights of migrant workers or Batas Kasambahay for Filipino domestic workers, these workers were actively consulted and drove the process in some ways. 
So we recognize they're precarious and we recognize that there are segments in these professions that are non-consenting, right? So forced labor and trafficking does happen in these professions. And so we address the worst cases as they come. And we encourage the other members of the profession to actually cooperate with us to like help us identify situations of abuse and trafficking. So I'm just very confused about why with sex work, we've taken a very different approach, which is to assume that the entire industry is victimhood and trafficking. Like, I'm not sure how it is ever scientific or rigorous right. or intellectually honest to look at an entire category of workers without like speaking to most of them or getting to know the industry and only speaking to the ones who identify as trafficking and then generalizing that experience to the entire industry is very confusing to me. And the other thing I think that is really problematic with how we go about it in the Philippines is we tend to, as I've alluded to earlier, we tend to pathologize sex workers and kind of make all sorts of like diagnosis about them. Oh, you have Stockholm syndrome or, oh, you have anxiety, you are mm -hmm. depressed. Therefore, like right. whatever testimony you give, if you ever say that you would prefer to be in sex work rather than factory work is delegitimized immediately because we don't treat them as credible actors. And you know what? It's true. In cases of abuse, you do sometimes, an individual is sometimes unable to adjudicate their best interest, but we only make these assessments after prolonged examination of individuals, right? Like we don't make a sweeping assessment about an entire category of workers. That, that to me is just incredibly irresponsible and dishonest. Mm -hmm. And then it means that we are shutting off any space for them to tell us why they are in sex work. And finally, last thought on this, we also seem to have this perception that sex work is a special source of trauma or abuse. And somehow like it is better if they are in factories or it is better if they're working as migrant workers. Like we don't get to make that assessments for people. The mm. women who work in factories that I've spoken to who have then turned to sex work say, I was in a factory, I developed arthritis, I developed back pain, I was late for five minutes, kinautasan ako sobrang laki ng kaltas, five minutes lang yung break namin para umihi ang haba ng pila para sa banyo. Like, to them, and, and also they were like, single mom ako, may sakit yung anak ko, nag-absent, nawalan ako ng trabaho. So, for these people, they're not stupid, which is kind of what is being assumed. They are making a rational decision here, whereas for some of them, engaging in sex work means fewer hours of work, more flexible working hours, higher rate of earning. Your kasambahay in the Philippines earns 4000 a month or less, but they have to literally leave their homes and their families to live with a different household and care for the kids in that household and have no ability to watch their kids grow up or look after their kids. Sex work allows them that flexibility. I'm not saying it's the greatest thing ever, but I'm saying we need to defer to individuals about how they adjudicate these things in their lives. So what do you think has led to some sort of distrust among the sex work community and the legal system? The legal system, the state, the police, the justice system, and everything about it. Why is there some sort of distrust? I guess it is what is their first exposure to it, right? The first exposure, the frontliners are the cops. And we've explained, we've gone through why this is not the greatest face for the state um, in its encounter with sex workers, because the cops are primary abusers. So on that level alone, there's already a big sense of mistrust, right? Mm -hmm. The Philippines is getting better at this, but we're not quite there yet. So you have services like social hygiene clinics, which sex workers can access. 
These, though, are sometimes stigmatized precisely because they are seen as spaces for sex workers. So some social hygiene clinics are doing really well. Some, though, and I've heard stories from sex workers, they go in and they report having an STD or they report having been abused and they get judgment from the medical right. practitioners who are like, well, or like when they come as a group to get treatment or a consultation, you hear people going, oh, andito na mga popo. In raids and rescue operations, where you have social workers and cops, the goal is to prosecute the perpetrators, right? Even if the sex workers themselves are not convinced that these people are perpetrators, because they are like, no, yes, this person is a pimp, but actually this is my friend who is helping me screen clients and who is helping me find clients. And without this person, I would actually feel more unsafe, precisely because we don't give them control over their working conditions, right? I mean, it's complex. Some pimps are genuinely exploitative, but it's not as simple as it's being portrayed. Now, if they're rescued in a raid or immediately the instinct is, the instinct of cops or social workers is to convince the sex worker to turn on their pimps, right? And to make them say that they are victims, to admit to victimization and to perform victimhood, and then to get their cooperation in the legal case against their perps. And some of them are like, but this is A, not accurate, B, not in our best interest, three, we don't want to be stuck here, we want to go back to work. And some of them are made to feel that any financial assistance they get, even if they are trafficking victims supposedly, is contingent on their cooperation with law enforcement. So again, that's another stage where they feel like they can't trust the state. So at every point of intervention, they're not being listened to and various agendas are being imposed on them. So even with feminist groups, right, at no point, at no point, during the policy conversations for anti-trafficking or Magna Carta of women or violence against women legislation, at no point were sex workers consulted. We had mm. trafficking survivors. We had former prostitutes or former prostituted women who say that they did not choose this work. And of course, we believe them. But it was only their testimony that was privileged. We never like listened to anyone who engages in sex work and wants to continue to engage in sex work. They were just excluded completely from these conversations. But various like truth claims were made on their behalf about them in support of laws that would directly affect their lives. But they were never involved in any of these chats. So... I mean, if they mistrust the state, I kind of understand. <laughs> yeah. So what kind of protections should sex workers have? And what would it take for the community to trust the police, the legal system, and the state? To be honest, I think the police front is a bit hopeless. I think the state should police the police. And the rest of society should police the police. This model of expecting sex workers to rely on protection from external sources is really just unsustainable. Like, there's only so much you can do to reform cops. Like, as we've discussed, the institutional culture is quite violent and masculinist. So we should discipline cops who are abusive. But under this regime, what are the chances of that happening, right? So mm. I think we also need to focus on building the capacity of sex workers to protect and defend themselves. So if they were in a position where they can organize, which they are not at the moment, because it's not legal, which means they can't even like form a union or form like a, a collective and then publicly advocate for themselves, right? If they were in that position, it becomes so much easier for them to legally challenge abusive cops, to get access to legal assistance. All it takes, right, is one successful lawsuit where a sex worker who is abused by cops takes him to court and gets a favorable verdict. Like, all it takes is that, right, to kind of instill some fear in the cops or to deter bad behavior. That can't happen and people feel like they can get away with treating sex workers badly. So I guess my perspective on the solution is, of course, state 
institutions should always improve themselves. And we should continue to educate the public about women's rights, their rights to their bodies, and all of that. But at the same time, the demographic that we are trying to help, we need to build their capacity. They need to be given space to be able to advocate for themselves, which really isn't happening right now. Okay, great. So thank you so much for giving your time and waking up for this. No worries. Thank you as well for covering it. Good luck. Good luck with it. We just talked to Sharmila Parmanand about the nuances of consent and agency in sex work and institutional problems in law enforcement that have caused sex workers to distrust the police even when they need protection. So how can we help an invisible sector like the sex workers? It starts with making space for their voices. I'm Michelle Abad. Thank you for tuning in. 